Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 7, Naked in the New World. I'm Brandon Seal. Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca's men spent a fitful first night on Galveston Island. They had been the crew of one of a five-raft flotilla that had drifted along the northern rim of the Gulf of Mexico without food and largely without water for the last few weeks. The remaining four rafts were nowhere to be seen, and it wouldn't have been unreasonable to assume that they'd just been swallowed up by the Gulf. Cabeza de Vaca had all but given himself up for dead just the night before, only to be awakened by his raft crashing onto the Galveston shoreline. Most of his men were so weak by that point that they could only crawl onto the beach. Yet it wasn't the trauma of their voyage or the state of near starvation in which they found themselves that kept Cabeza de Vaca's men up that first night. No, it was that the last thing they had seen as light faded was 100 Native Americans armed with man-length longbows turning their backs on them, their intentions unclear. Cabeza de Vaca had assured his men that the Indians were going to bring them aid, but the expeditionary's last few encounters with natives had given them little reason for hope. In each previous instance, their efforts at diplomacy had been rewarded by violent assaults, and so most of the men, probably, expected the same from the caboques, as the natives of Galveston Island called themselves. As expected, the caboques did return to the beach the next morning. Yet to the surprise of the more skeptical expeditionaries, they arrived carrying only dried fish and cooked cattail roots. The expeditionaries devoured it all, everything, so that the caboques had to actually return to their village and bring them seconds. The expeditionaries repaid this kindness with what small gifts they could, mostly bells and beads which they had brought along with them for precisely this purpose. And sure enough, it worked. The food kept coming. And this continued for several days, with the expeditionaries slowly beginning to recover their strength. As welcome as the Caboca's charity was, however, the expeditionaries had no intention of staying any longer on Galveston Island than they had to. They had seen generosity turn to hostility before with native hosts, and they must have sensed how their presence was taxing the resources of the small community living on the island. Plus, they wanted to get home, or at least back amongst their own people. The closest Castilian settlement they knew was on the Rio Panuco, near modern-day Tampico. The problem for the expeditionaries is that they had no idea where they actually were. Some of them thought they had already passed Panuco. Others thought that it lay still further down the coast. Almost immediately, the expeditionaries set about repairing their humble raft. At 30 feet long by maybe 15 feet wide, the raft was barely large enough to accommodate the 49 men in Cabeza de Vaca's party. And simply lifting it off the beach and carrying it into the surf was an ordeal for these men in their weakened state. When they finally had the raft in a serviceable state, the first thing the expeditionaries did was to take off their clothes and store them on board. That way, they would at least have the comfort of dry clothes to face the merciless gulf here in mid to late November of 1528. When they were ready, the naked men hopped into the water and began to push the raft out into the waves. One by one, they hopped aboard and then began to paddle maniacally to try and get past the breakers. But a couple hundred yards from the shore, a wave smashed into what I guess you could call the bow of their craft, and smashed into it so violently that it actually knocked the oars from their hands. Still naked, shivering now from the cold, 
the expeditionaries felt themselves losing control of their raft. As it slowly rotated, it presented its broadside to the next line of waves. When those waves hit, they were defenseless. The water slept clear over and under the raft, overturning it. Three men clung desperately to the sides, but ended up trapped underneath and drowned. Two others, presumably unable to swim, washed up lifeless on the shore as well. And of course, all of the crew's meager possessions, including their clothes, were gone too now. Just to drive it all home, the waves then smashed their capsized raft back onto the beach, dashing any hopes that the men might have had of making a second attempt. The survivors staggered through the waves back to shore, quote, half-drowned and naked as the day we were born, having lost all that we had brought with us, end quote. Meanwhile, the Caboques, the Native Americans of the island who had saved the lives of the expeditionaries with their generosity, had no idea that any of this was going on. They had gone back to their village, where they were trying to make sense of the strange events of the last few days that had brought 49 pathetic, starving aliens to their little barrier island, which could barely support them, frankly. The scarcity of resources in their lives was illustrated by the fact that their village on Galveston Island was in truth really just a seasonal encampment, which they occupied in the winter months to harvest cattail roots and the fish and shellfish of the bay, only to abandon it in the spring before crossing over to the mainland to continue their foraging there. But these were not wealthy people. And so given that scarcity and their own general poverty, what was it that had motivated the Cabocas to go back to the shoreline time after time to bring food to these strange-looking castaways? What did they hope to gain from sharing their meager resources with them? Or were they motivated by some other moral or religious duty, some sense of charity? It's fun to invent theories here. For example, did they know that they were living in a moment when worlds were colliding? Had rumors of aliens like these reached them on their isolated outpost on the Texas Gulf Coast? Had the mysterious illnesses afflicting the natives of Mexico begun to run their course this far north? Did they believe that these castaways maybe were divine, sent from the sky perhaps, to test them maybe? Whatever it was, they couldn't leave them alone, and so they kept going back to check on them. But when they saw the expeditionaries, the evening after their failed departure, they were shocked at what they found. Somehow, the expeditionaries were in an even more pitiful state than they'd been when they left them the day before. With the north wind blowing on them, the expeditionaries huddled naked and trembling around their sad fires, quote, closer to death than life, end quote. And whereas the expeditionaries were typically very good about always thanking God for even the smallest of blessings, this time, they couldn't even think of that. All they could do was administer to themselves last rites. Quote, there we were, begging for mercy from our Lord and forgiveness for our sins, crying many tears, each man consumed with pity not just for himself, but for all the others he saw around him as well, end quote. The Cabocas were confused. They turned to go back to their village, maybe to talk it out some more, maybe to bring some more resources. But Cabeza de Vaca stopped them. He tried to explain what had happened to them. By means of hand signs, he recreated the story of exactly what had happened earlier that day, though it must have been obvious. And then... The Cabocas did something that shocked Cabeza de Vaca. Quote, The Indians, seeing the disaster that had visited us and the state we were in from so much misfortune and misery, they sat down amongst us. 
and with great sadness and pain from seeing our unlucky selves, they began to cry intensely and so loudly that they could be heard from far away. This lasted for more than half an hour, end quote. This behavior really puzzled Cabeza de Vaca, as well as the rest of his colleagues. If they had found 40-some-odd interlopers back on their land in Castile, it's doubtful that they would have been nearly so generous, or for that matter, sympathetic. But that moment of the Caboca's weeping gave the expeditionaries an appreciation for the charity they had received from the natives up to that point, but also new perspective on their own miserable state. Upon first being discovered by the Caboques in the previous episode, Cabeza de Vaca had been presented with a choice. He could feign strength, and by doing so, hope that he might scare the natives into helping him. Or, he could confess his vulnerability and appeal to some shared sense of human decency. He went with vulnerability, and it worked. Now, at this new moment, as the Caboques were weeping all around him, he looked down at himself and at his fellow expeditionaries and noticed something. They were all naked, quote, naked as they were, end quote, referring to the Caboques. Their nakedness, their vulnerability, was something that they shared with the natives, who otherwise came from such a different universe of experience that they might as well have been a different species. Yet this idea for Cabeza de Vaca, this word, naked, desnudo, or acueros, or some variation thereof, will appear more than a dozen times in this account. It's a reminder to his audience that on his journey, he has none of the conquistador's traditional tools. And yet it's also a suggestion that to survive, he begins to make himself like the men in the new world all around him. Cabeza de Vaca's nakedness will become an ongoing metaphor for both his vulnerability and for his openness to new experience. In this instance, Cabeza de Vaca once again embraced his vulnerability and handed himself over entirely to the Caboca's mercy. He asked them to take him and his men back to their village. To Cabeza de Vaca's delight, they accepted, and with this good news, he tried to rally his men up onto their feet to make the mile or so march to the other side of the island. Despite the Caboca's unconditional generosity up to this point, however, some of the expeditionaries remained skeptical. Recall that some of these men were veterans of the conquest of Mexico. They remembered the screams of their comrades captured in battle and sacrificed alive to the Aztec's gods. And when they saw the Caboca's, quote, great pleasure, end quote, at Cabeza de Vaca's request, they read it in the worst possible way, as confirmation of their suspicions all along that the Caboca's only wanted to fatten them up enough for some kind of ritual sacrifice. In the end, five of Cabeza de Vaca's men said they wouldn't go along, that they preferred to take their chances alone on the beach. Most of the surviving 44 or so men were more hungry than skeptical, and so they went along with Cabeza de Vaca's plan. Probably, they reasoned it out the way Cabeza de Vaca did, quote, Otro remedio no había, end quote. There was no other option. Instead of immediately taking the expeditionaries back to their village, however, the Caboques began to run around collecting firewood. Lots of it. They actually spent a couple hours doing this, leaving all the expeditionaries plenty of time to wonder what exactly the natives needed so much firewood for. As dusk began to fall, 30 Caboques returned to the beach 
accompanied by the faint, distant smell of smoke. The Cavocas came over to where the expeditionaries lay, most of them too weak to walk or to do anything, really, and the Cavocas picked them up one by one. They placed them on their backs and began to carry them through the cold night. Quote, they never even let our feet touch the ground, end quote, Cabeza de Vaca says. As the group came over the first row of sand dunes, the expeditionaries suddenly saw what the Cabocas had been doing with all that firewood. They had lit bonfires all along the way to their village. Stopover points where they could set down their skinny, shivering cargo and let them warm up again before going on. And in their village itself, the amenities only got better. The Cabocas had prepared for their guests a large hut, warmed by many fires, right in the center of the other lodges. But it was all too much. Too much for these expeditionaries who had seen only the worst of human nature from themselves and from their opponents over the last few months. Why would these Indians be going to such trouble to take care of them? And then a wild pachanga started up and it scared the daylights out of these expeditionaries. Probably more than one wish that he had stayed back on the beach with the five skeptics. Quote, An hour after we arrived, the Cabocas started to dance and had a great party that lasted all night. Though for us there was no party and there was no sleep, as we expected them to sacrifice us. End quote. A European observer in the 1700s gives a more lengthy description of a South Texas mitote, as later natives would call these ceremonies. Quote, they play a tambourine that is made of a tortoise shell or of a half gourd or with a French pot and a whistle of reeds and an avocacel. For the sad ones, they play certain instruments that they call the caiman. This is very harsh and melancholy, and to the discordant notes they add sad and horrible cries, accompanied by gestures, grimaces, and extraordinary contortions and movements of the body, jumping and leaping in a circle. For this mitote, they light a big fire, a bonfire, and dance around it, circling around the fire without ceasing, day or night. In these dances, the Indians seem like demons because of the gestures that they make. End quote. And yet, even as the Cavocas danced around like, quote, demons, they had no intention of sacrificing their new guests. Their mitote was apparently little more than a celebration of the incredible events that had brought these aliens halfway around the world and to their shores. It had been a memorable few days for everyone involved, new worlders and old. Dawn brought them only more charity on the part of the Cavocas, more fish and more roots for them to eat. Quote, they gave us such nice treatment that we were reassured and lost our fear of being sacrificed, end quote. It was a real high point for the expeditionaries after a dark, dark several months. But it wouldn't last. On the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode at rivardreport.com, home for nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Also, please go like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. We're telling old stories in new ways here, but a story's power comes from its being shared with others. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache, is composed by Kevin Graham and available on Soundstrike. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, 
to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center in also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about the sources we've used in this series, as well as about us generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.